Good morning, it's good to be with you. I trust you can bear with my voice. It's better today than it has been for several days. I would say something at home and my children would look at me and say, What? It was pretty croaky. <clears throat> Turn with me to First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, I'll read verses 4 through 9. First Peter 2 verse 4. To whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'll stop reading there. And I like to begin with a question to get you thinking. And I'd like to have a response from you. The question is this. What is the church? What is the church? All right. The bride of Christ. What else? Some when I, when I thought of the right of Christ, that made me think of Christ's co-worker or companion. Okay. Working for the same purpose. Sometimes we view the church as a building. You this morning got up and you thought, this is Sunday, I'm going to church. Coming here to this building. And in a sense, it it is. It's a place where we, who are the church, gather. Sometimes we view the church as an institution or as an organization, which... Again, in a sense, it is. Daniel Kaufman said, The church is an organization that God has set up to serve as a spiritual home for his people here on earth. I like that description. It's an organization or an institution set up to serve as a spiritual home for the people of God here on earth. Some people, however, have reached the place where the church has become an escape from their home here on earth. 
Do you see the difference? One, the church is the home. One, the earth is the home. It depends which you claim as your home. We might think of the church as a community of believers. We hear that term, a community of believers. But it's more than a community of believers. It's a brotherhood of believers. And this may be argued, it's a play on words, but I see a difference between a community of believers and a brotherhood of believers. In a community, there are independent individuals coming together probably for a common cause, but working as individuals. As a brotherhood, it again is individuals coming together, but when they come together, they lose their independent identity because of their common goal and based on love. You see the difference between community and brotherhood. And I think our focus as a church needs to be on a brotherhood rather than a community. And this morning as we look at the church, I don't mean specifically this group of people here as a local body. I'd like to look at more generally what does God see as his church? And you can make application to this specific local body here today. A Christian's loyalty to the church Again, not this specific church, although it it could be applied here. But a Christian's loyalty to the church of God is based on love rather than on duty or compulsion or a strict code of conduct. If you think of other organizations in the world, your loyalty to that is based on a sense of duty or you are forced to be loyal to that. Or there is a strict strict rules or a strict code of conduct that you follow to be loyal to that entity. Our loyalty to the church of God is based on our love for him and our love for the brotherhood. William Temple says this, The church is the only cooperative society in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Interesting to think about. It is the only cooperative society in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. And in a way, the church is all of these things that we've talked about. It is a building. It is an organization. It is a community. It is a brotherhood. But in more than this, I think if we claim to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ, we need to know what it is what it truly is and not simply adapt to the existing understanding of what it is because I think more and more today there's a big difference between what the church truly is and what the common understanding is. The seed of the church was planted with the first words of Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 1 Verse 14 and 15 says, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven and saying the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. I think right there is where the seed of the church began. When Jesus came, he was preaching and he said, Repent ye 
The kingdom of God is at hand. That is what the church is. The kingdom of God. Jesus was introducing a new kingdom. I recently read a book. Which is good for me. I don't read a lot of books. King Jesus Claims His Church by Finney Coravelli. And the title, King Jesus Claims His Church, is the theme throughout the whole book. So some of the thoughts that I'll be getting, that I'll be sharing this morning come from that book. But he begins by showing what a huge political upset it was for Jesus to make a statement like that. Think of the political landscape when Jesus came on the scene preaching the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Israel was in a time of political upheaval already. And Jesus came in saying, I have a new kingdom or I have a new nation. I'm starting this. Follow me. Think of the responses that he was getting from people. Jesus was not crucified for his teaching on love. Jesus was crucified because his enemies felt threatened by the possibility that he was gathering a new rival nation around himself. And that is what the church is. It is a rival nation to any other nation, kingdom if you want to call it, on earth. That is what got Jesus crucified. And when Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, he didn't mean it as an illustration. Sometimes today we think of it as an illustration of some kind. He didn't mean it as an illustration. It was real enough that he was willing to go to the cross for it. It was it's real. It's a present reality today. It's a reality for those who have given their hearts and their lives over the, to the control of God. If you're still in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, it describes those who are a part of the kingdom of God or a part of the church. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, And if you are part of the church, listen closely because it's describing you. For you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. That's real. It's not an illustration and it's not figurative. It's real. A peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the purpose of the church is to show forth the praises of him or show the glory of Jesus here on earth is the purpose of the church. I think this is the most important thing to understand about the church. And we've talked, I heard this morning of the bride of Christ. The church is described as the body of Christ. It's described as lively stones earlier we read in chapter 2 here. But to think of the church as a, a nation or a kingdom is the most important because that is real. The other things are figurative or metaphors or illustrations that show different characteristics of the church. But this nation that Jesus was gathering around himself is real. And it's what we are a part of today. 
to join the kingdom of God means to come out of the world. We are born into the world as sinful people, but to join this nation, we need to come out. We are called out of darkness. Romans 12 says to be not conformed to the world. We are called out separately. It says we are a holy nation, and holy means separated. That's the the point of what this church is. <clears throat> all of our choices, all of our decisions, all of our responses, all of our actions will reflect our allegiance, the level of our allegiance to this nation, to the church. And again, the reason it's important to view this as a nation is this is literal. If we lose sight of the reality of this kingdom or nation, the church becomes little more than a social group where we come and go as we please. When we lose sight of the church as a spiritual reality, it's our tendency to sit back and view the church with an analytical eye. We look for what a certain for what about a certain church fits our preferences best. I stumbled through that. David Platt says it better. He says it like this. The church becomes a vendor of religious goods and services and we become consumers where we go to church like we go to the supermarket and pick out what works best for us. We treat the church like a marketplace of ideas. And we think that's pretty far-fetched. Is it? Sometimes I think we're guilty of coming, gathering together, and taking home what we want to take home. And we become consumers. If this is our view of the church, we might not want to become a member, but we're satisfied to be an attender. Where we come to this marketplace of ideas taking home whatever we want without having to get involved of building the church because we are an attender. We come when it suits us or if it's expected of us and we forget that if we claim to be a part of the church, although attendance is a gauge of our our uh, Commitment, attendance is a gauge to our commitment, but we forget that gathering together like this on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday evening or a Sunday night is such a small part of what the church is about. Sometimes we put this on too much, too high. It needs to be on a pedestal, don't get me wrong, but we, we say this is what church is and then we go about our week. This is such a small part. <clears throat> As a Christian, you are always, not on Sunday, not on Sunday night, not on Wednesday night, but you are always a representative of the glory of Jesus on earth. That you may show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's showing the glory of God throughout the week. 2 Corinthians 5 calls us ambassadors of Christ. Mahatma Gandhi says this, I like your Christ I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. 
What would he have said if he would have come here this morning? There are two main things that mark a citizen of the kingdom of God or of this this real nation. The first one is this. As a citizen of this heavenly nation, we are now controlled by the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to dwell in you and walk in you to guide all of your decisions, everything you do? There is no rule book thick enough to cover every situation and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us will give us that discernment and that understanding to know how to handle Every situation. Everything that comes along, it can give us guidance. There's so many things that weigh into the decisions we make, whether they're right or wrong, whether we should accept something or reject something. And that's what the Holy Spirit does, dwelling in us and walking in us. We are His people and every decision we make is based on that, allowing the Holy Spirit to have control in our life. That is the mark of somebody who is a part of the church. Secondly, as a citizen of the heavenly nation or as a citizen of the church, our lives will be transformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that verse is misinterpreted so often. It's misinterpreted like this, and it's saying to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I don't need to change anything I do externally because it's all in my mind. Our our mindset is different. That's half of it. It says it's transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not in your mind. Your mind is renewed and then your life is transformed because of that. And again, that comes down to our actions, the way we talk, the way we act, the way we respond. Everything is a result of this transformed life, this transformed mind. So how do we know who is a citizen of this nation, of this kingdom? Who is a part of the church? We've established that the church is a holy nation, directly opposed to the mindset of the world around us. The church is real. It's a present reality. The church is made up of Christians with transformed lives who willingly yield their lives to the control of the Holy Spirit. I, I thought about that for a while. We are controlled by the Holy Spirit, which is good. But when you think of something or somebody being controlled by someone else, right away our red flags go up and we think of it as a negative thing. As a child of God, we are willingly controlled. We surrender and we yield and we give our lives to the control of the Holy Spirit. So how then do we decide or discern who is a part of this church? Do we have a right to decide who is a part of this church? Yes, we do. John 8.32 says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Truth is exclusive in its very nature. If I make a statement 
and Rupert makes a statement directly contradicting what I said, they can't both be true. It has to be one or the other. Truth will exclude everything that isn't truth. Jesus warns us to beware of false prophets. He uses the illustration of good trees bring forth good fruit. Bad trees won't bring forth good fruit. We can observe this in the life of people. He tells us to recognize false prophets by their fruits and we think, well, that's easy. Because if a false prophet would come in here to our church and begin preaching false doctrine, we would recognize it and we would pick up on it. And we probably would if that's all that false prophets did. And I use the term false prophet generally here. When somebody tries to deceive us, it's not necessarily going to be in blatant disobedience. So a false prophet won't try to lead somebody astray by what they're teaching, but rather by what they're not teaching. What they're living and what they're teaching might be right, but what they're not living and what they're not teaching is what makes them false. Do you understand the difference? If it's a partial truth, it's still a false prophet. Even though what they said might be right, but what they didn't say, what they excluded, or what they're leaving out. And this is more than just somebody up behind this pulpit or somebody having a topic. It's in, a way of, it's in somebody's way of life, in the way they live, what they're leaving out intentionally. Beliefs, beliefs cannot be separated from behavior. Finney Caravelli says this, Some will try to undercut this test by throwing around expressions like we all sin anyway or do not judge lest you be judged. Such sloganeering has an inescapable end. It robs the church of the very tool Jesus gives us to save ourselves from the bad path, the broad path of destruction. So we are called to keep the church pure, to keep it clean keep it holy I mentioned earlier that Jesus gave several metaphors or several illustrations terms of illustration that bring out different characteristics of what the church is the first one I'd like to look at is the body of Christ turn with me to the book of Ephesians Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. As we read, I have several verses in Ephesians and I'm going to have you turn to. And as we read this, keep in mind, you are a part of this church. How do you fit into these verses? Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The church is the body of Christ. With the fullness 
of him that filleth all in all. The church is given the fullness of Christ. It's given his attributes. As we grow in our faith and as we grow in our walk with God, we will come into the fullness of Christ. And we know Jesus is, is perfect in all things. He's perfect in wisdom, in goodness, in, in justice, in everything. Gentleness, compassion, love. He's perfect in all of this. And that is made available to each one of us here. We are His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. Keep that in mind. And now look, let's look at Ephesians 2, verse 16. And that He might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. What he's talking about here is the Jews and the Gentiles coming together, losing their individual identities and becoming one in the church. Verse 16 again. And that he might reconcile both unto God, both of these, unto God in one body by the cross. Now look at Ephesians 3, 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Jews and Gentiles, everybody coming together, losing their individual identity and becoming one body, working together as one body. Ephesians 4. The first four verses says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. These four verses tie together all those other verses we just looked at. In verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. We are called out of darkness into his light or we are called into the church, into this holy nation, this kingdom of God. That is the vocation wherewith we are called. So walk worthy of it, he's saying. With all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering. That is the fullness of Christ within the church that we have available to us. We can use that. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Wherever there are individuals coming together, there's bound to be friction. There's differences of opinion, of personalities. So he's saying, you come together and you become one. You let the Holy Spirit move through you, which will give you discernment to know when something's important to take up arms and when it's not. With the love of the brotherhood, where we are losing our identity Submitting to each other. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. One unified body. Again in Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the fullness, stature of the fullness of Christ. There are gifts within the church for the edifying or for the building up and the perfecting 
of the church. That is the goal of all of us in verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We've already established that the church has available to us the fullness of Christ. A perfect love, a perfect wisdom, a perfect all the attributes of Christ. And the goal of all of us is to edify and to build up so that we can all come to the fullness of that. Ephesians 4.16 From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto edifying of itself in love. 1st or 2nd Corinthians chapter 12 talks a lot about the body of Christ. Every member of of this church working together as a body. But this verse shows, again, there's individuals coming together but losing their identity and each person brings something, some God-given something to the church. We need ushers. We need song leaders. We need encouragers. We need prayer warriors. We need teachers. Every part is coming together. My tendency is to think of these gifts as being Sunday morning gifts where we come and we use them and then we go home. And again, I think that's very short-sighted to think of it that way because the church, this is a small part of what the church is about. We need to use these gifts throughout the week. Not just when we're here. Use the gifts in your day-to-day activities. Ephesians 5, verse 30. For we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. Again, this is the church being members of the body of Christ. This is the passage that we go to when we see how a husband and a wife are supposed to relate to each other. We liken the husband and wife relationship to Christ and the church. The reverence and submission of the wife and the love of the husband is taught by looking at the example of Christ and the church. And I think we understand that. And this is right, and it's it's good to do that. To see how a husband and wife should relate, because Christ is the perfect husband, and the church is designed to be the perfect wife. Or it's, it's characterized as that. And it's easy to do this, to analyze how I as a husband or, or a, a wife is doing measuring up against Christ and, the, Christ and the church. It's easy to do that. But what if we flip that around? We are members of the church of Jesus Christ as the bride of Christ What if we measure how we, as the bride of Christ, are doing compared to a godly husband and wife? Of course, Christ, as the husband, is always going to be perfect. 
But look at a godly husband and wife and how they are relating. They're faithful. He is taking his role as a leader and a provider, as, as a thoughtful husband. The wife is reverencing and submitting and it's working well. That leaves us as the church of Jesus Christ, as the bride of Christ. How are we filling that role? How do we, how do we fill that? Are we doing okay? If you look, if we hear of a godly husband and wife, and we hear of the wife has cheated on the husband, we are shocked and we are devastated and we are left reeling. How could this have happened? Right? That's what we, and we should think that way. We are the bride of Christ. What do we feel when we are caught cheating on the bridegroom, on Christ? And we know it happens. There's little slip-ups here and there where we fall short or we don't do what we know we should. We, we willingly sin. We willingly look at something we shouldn't. We willingly have a an attitude, whatever it is, that is no different than a wife cheating on her husband. And God looks at it the same way. In James, he says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. When we put too much of our attention into the world and the things of the world, it is no different than adultery within a marriage. But somehow we don't think of it as that big of a deal. If you were, if you can go back, those of you who are married, if you can go back however many years you've been married, it's kind of important for a dating couple for them both to be into the relationship, to both be for it and working towards a good relationship. Or even if, you, if you're married, imagine if your spouse was half-heartedly into it when they wanted to be um, doing fairly well, but it's hurtful and it's devastating and it's confusing to the faithful spouse or the faithful partner. We know that Christ is never confused. Jesus is never confused and, and God is never confused by what we do. But how does he feel when we don't put everything we have into this relationship with him as the bride of Christ? How does, we, how does he feel when we try to rationalize the things we do or when we, we support the church or we're, we're for the program of the church when it suits us, when we feel like it? When we're a little bit ashamed maybe to stand out. How does that make him feel? You see the parallel I'm drawing between an actual husband and a wife relationship here in Christ and the church? That's how real it is. And to my shame, I've never, I don't see it. I don't look at it that way like I should. It's just as devastating when we fall short of God and have no remorse for it. Revelation 21, verse 2. 
And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then in Ephesians 5 again, He, that he might present it to himself, the bride, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. One day, Christ is going to return for his bride. A perfect, pure, spotless bride. For a holy, set-apart people that are part of his church. I think we can all agree that not everybody who claims to be a part of this church will return with Christ. It is not enough to claim to be part of the church that is spotless. We need to be the church that is spotless. There is such a thing, you've heard of guilt by association. There is such a thing of guilt by association. There is no such thing as purity by association. That has to come with the Holy Spirit working in you and allowing Him to work in you and understanding that we are part of the Bride of Christ. Lively stones is mentioned in 1 Peter. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, we are part of that building, that solid building. As living stones, we come together. Matthew 16, Jesus said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This proclamation that every one of us has made, that Peter made, that every one of us has made, is what Jesus Christ is building his church on. Somebody that is submitted and yielded 100% to the Holy Spirit, allowing him to work in every aspect of our lives. And we say, you are... Jesus, you are the Christ. You are, Christ means king. You are the king of this new nation. That is what the church is built on. That's what it's about. Does, do, does what you do and what I do reflect that as I go throughout my week, though? It has been said, and many of you have probably seen throughout history, different earthly organizations or institutions that follow this pattern. A man, a movement, a machine, and then a monument. Something begins with the vision of one man. He gathers people around him and it becomes a movement. Probably like fidget spinners, I don't know. Then it becomes a machine. It's streamlined and it's working well. But then that original vision is lost. And it it dies out and it becomes a monument. Just something that people see sitting beside the road and they remember what was. You've seen that probably. That will never happen to the church of Jesus Christ. It began with a man. Jesus said, it's my church. It became a movement and it is still a movement. 
And sometimes we make feeble attempts at making it a machine, of making it go smoothly, and that's not always bad. But the true church of Jesus Christ will never become a monument. It says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what am I doing, or what are you doing, in keeping that movement, I don't really like that term, but I think you understand what I mean. What are we doing to keep that movement alive, or keeping it going? Are we seeing the church for what it really is? A present reality. I'd like to close with several questions that challenged me as I studied this. First one, am I doing all that I can to keep the church pure and spotless? Many people, this is a quote from Finney Curavelli, many people give more care to buying a house or selecting a barber than to identifying the shepherd of their souls or the direction of their families. Am I doing everything I can to keep the church spotless? What would it look like if everyone was as faithful faithful to the church as I am? Am I edifying the church as a member or am I simply an attender? Am I, as part of the church, an unashamed and faithful representation of the glory of Christ? If you're able to, would you kneel for prayer?